From war across the globe to regulating speech to printing trillions of dollars, the American regime accepts no limits on its power. As Ludwig von Mises understood, the state will take as much power as the people will let it. And in recent years, the American regime has clearly concluded it can get away with unilaterally adopting vast new powers. Join Michael Rechtenwald, Ted Galen Carpenter, Jonathan Newman, and more for a Mises Institute event in Nashville, Tennessee on September 23rd, dedicated to this siege of power and one of Ron Paul's favorite lines, truth is treason in the empire of lies. Tickets begin at $95. Get yours at Mises.org slash Nashville 23. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash Nashville 23. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Jonathan, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Sure thing. Well, since in a sense, what we're doing right now is part two of the episode we did somewhat recently uh, on whether there's going to be a soft landing. And so that's why I thought it made perfect sense to have you back on since in a, in a way, this is sort of just taking the conversation a little bit deeper. Specifically, folks, what we're addressing right now is, as you know, if you've been watching this show or reading the financial press, looking at econ Twitter, the Federal Reserve has been sharply raising interest rates, ostensibly to fight inflation, measures of conventional inflation like CPI and whatnot. They have slowed down remarkably and unemployment is not zooming up. GDP growth still seems, eh, seems all right or whatever. You don't see a huge collapse in spending. And so a lot of economists have concluded that even though the Fed raised rates like that and inflation came down, there's not going to be a recession. And so now they're commenting on that situation. Okay. So again, before Jonathan and I were mostly explaining why we thought this was, uh, declaring victory too soon that how do we know there's not going to be a recession and we went through the theory and evidence as to why we still thought it was very much uh still a, a present clear and present danger but now we're talking about something a little bit different because a lot of economists are congratulating powell and the rest of the fed for hey you did a good job you brought down inflation with your tough interest rate hikes and other measures of tightening good job guys and you didn't throw us into recession and so the a lot of progressives uh, and post-Keynesians and things like that, they're coming forward now and saying, no, that story doesn't make any sense. There's no way that what we just saw happen with inflation and throughout this episode, folks, I, I might slip. And if I say inflation, I probably mean rises in consumer prices, even though Austrians think that inflation really should be referring to money, stock or credit. Um, they're saying there's no way that you can congratulate the, the Fed had nothing to do with it or it had very little to do with that. All right, so just to give us some context here, Jonathan and I have analyzed this, but um, the, a piece that people are passing around that sort of crystallizes this view, but it's not just him. It's it's that's all over the place. It's uh, by James K. Galbraith um, called Unpacking America's, quote, soft landing. So this came out, I think, in early August. And so he starts up back in 2021 and early 2022. A posse of prominent economists, including Lawrence Summers, Jason Furman, and Kenneth Rogoff, all of Harvard, criticized the Biden administration's fiscal and investment program and pressured the U.S. Federal Reserve to raise interest rates. Their argument was that inflation fueled by federal spending would prove persistent, requiring a sustained shift to austerity. Unemployment, sadly, would have to rise to at least 6.5% for several years, according to one study touted by Furman. Okay, and so then he just goes through there and then says how there were a bunch of progressives that disagreed with them and said, no, 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 if you raise interest rates too much, you're going to tip us into a recession. This inflation's transitory. Let's just hang on. and It'll kind of go away on its own as supply bottlenecks clear up after COVID, blah, blah, blah. So that was what the argument was over. And Jonathan and I already talked about that a couple episodes ago. Um, and then, so this is still Galebreth now, a few paragraphs later in his article, he says, uh, the macroeconomic situation has confounded both positions. Contrary to those advocating austerity, inflation peaked on its own in mid-2022. There was no persistence. 
There's also been no recession. Unemployment has not risen. Da, 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 da. Un, uh, high interest rates have not deterred business investment, blah, 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 blah. And they says, these happy circumstances have led some of others to congratulate Powell and the Fed on achieving a, quote, soft landing. But crediting the Fed is magical thinking. There is no way under any theory or precedent that rate hikes beginning in January 2022 could have knocked back inflation by July of the same year. Whatever its consequences down the road, the Fed's policy tightening has been irrelevant to the inflation slowdown so far. Okay, so that's, I'll stop quoting from him. That's the, the setup here, and you know that's the commentary. So I have a bunch of things to talk about, Jonathan, but I've been hogging the microphone, so why don't I stop and let you chime in at this point? Sure. So my first reaction uh, when I was reading that was I, was I just went back to the FOMC press releases. I went back to their to their announcements back at the time. And you can actually see in uh, late 2021 uh, and into the early parts of 2022 that they were already, you know, signaling this sort of change in the sorts of policy that they were going to undertake, that they were going to start to increase interest rates. And so, so when people are saying that it's impossible for the Fed's actions to have had such an immediate reaction, I, I think about the what's called the expectations channel, or I think about mm-hmm. the way that the Fed uses what's called forward guidance to to try to tell the the market what they're going to do in the future. And a lot of times they're wrong. And you could actually there's a lot to say about uh, the quality of the Fed's own projections. But the point is that at the end of 2021, they were already saying, "Hey, we're getting ready to increase rates. It looks like there's inflation coming, and we're not." We're not going to let that get out of control, and so of co- of course we would be the last ones to say that the the Fed is, is you know really worried about inflation. But in my opinion, I, I do think that they did make a credible commitment for for better or for worse. They they convinced people that they weren't going to allow the the money supply to keep increasing and for rates to stay near zero while the price level was increasing. And so I think that I think that investors and in, in, in financial institutions responded and I think we we saw the reduction in lending, saw the reduction in investment um as a result. So they had those expectations in place and that's what caused the 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 more the more immediate reaction where we didn't get as much of a, of a spike in inflation or what Mises would call a crack up boom. And the reason why is because people, they realize that the Fed is not going to continue to allow the money supply to increase while, while prices are increasing. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with political pressures. I know I'm sort of jumping from topic to topic, but I think the, I think the Fed does respond to reputational sorts of, 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 um, influences, meaning that they, they don't want the blame. They don't want to be blamed for causing all this in- inflation. And so if they keep rates low, if they keep doing all the money printing while prices are increasing, that makes them very unpopular. It makes them a, a scapegoat for the federal government. Um, and so I, I, I think for those reasons, th- we can't say that the Fed's um, increase in interest rates in 2022 had no impact. We, I mean, I think it's it's not controversial to say that it had some impact, but but some economists are saying that it had very little or no impact at all. Yeah, so that's a great point. And even um, Galbraith's own explanation or his own narrative, it's showing that you're right. That the by the way, I should clarify. He he made his case un, unwittingly weaker because he he, he kind of messed up messed up that there was. The rate hikes didn't even start until March. So he could have said it makes no sense. There's no theory or precedent where rate hikes that really began in March of 2022 had an effect just a few months later, something like that, whereas he said January. Um, but what's you're right. So even in his own story, it's, oh, wow, there was this growing chorus of economists, like top gun economists, people, Larry Summers, who are all from Harvard publicly wearing in the wall street journal or doing open letters and all these other things warning, Hey, this price inflation is getting out of hand. You cannot let uh, in part of this goes with your expectations that the, the theory was you can't let um, expectations. You, you can't get rid of um, the anchoring. They say like, you have to keep inflation expectations anchored. That's like a favorite thing for fed chairs to talk about. And the idea is that, yeah, if the public starts accepting it as now it's the new normal that, Oh, wow. Yeah. CPI was up 6%, 7%. 
year over year. I guess that's just how it is now. Instead of, well, this is some crazy post-COVID thing, but don't worry, this will soon go back to normal. The idea was if you if you let that genie out of the bottle and people just start thinking that's normal, it's just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I, th- I think maybe this at this point, Jonathan, just so the viewers, for those of you listening on audio, you're not going to be able to see this, but and I'll try to give some description of it. But for the people watching the video, we'll show this uh, right now. So here is a chart showing... Um, there's three different things on this chart. That's the most I thought you folks could handle. And do, if you're chewing gum, you need to spit it out right now. <laughs> um, and so we see here, so the this goes from 2003 up to the present. And you can see the blue line is the federal funds rate. So that's the you know, very short term. It's technically the rate that banks charge each other for overnight loans of reserves. Okay, so this is a very short term interest rate. This is what the press means when they say the Fed cut interest rates or the Fed raised rates. That's what this blue line is. So you could see, again, I went back to 2003 just so people could see a little bit of the um, the context here and see see the patterns. But you could see that um, in recent times here, the Fed has going up up to 2020, which is the the thin little rectangle gray one. That's that's the recession that hit. Um, for the two-month period, right when the lockdowns were in full gear. And so going into that, you can see that the Fed dropped interest rates down from about 2.4 all the way down to basically zero pretty rapidly. And you can see that the Fed, now let's look at that red line, that is the Fed's balance sheet. Those are the total assets owned by the Federal Reserve System. And you can see that that spiked going right into the COVID period as well. All right, I think I think it went up eighty uh, percent or something like that. Okay, just in a, that short time, and then it kept going up afterwards. But I'm talking about a, a very quick spike. Also, I put a green line on here, which is M two, which is like a broader monetary aggregate. It's loosely speaking, it's like money or near moneyness or near money that's in the hands of the public. Okay, and that you can see it's the exact same. It's spiked right going into into the COVID period with that sm- that very thin rectangle. And the reason I included that was just because in case you're worried that, well, just because the Fed's doing something on its, its end, maybe there was a brick wall and it was it was a black hole and the banks were just absorbing. No, you, M2 is clearly money that's like in the hands of the public, broadly speaking, and includes uh, mutual money market, mutual uh, funds and stuff like that. Okay, so you can see the pattern there and how it all rises rapidly. And then you see in... March of 2022, everything turns on a dime. Those three series all flip around. The blue line starts being, you know, shooting up rapidly. That's the Fed hiking rates. And you see the red line peaks and then starts going down. That's because the Fed was letting its balance sheet shrink, sucking reserves out of the financial sector. And you see that green line also peaked and then starts turning down. So again, money broadly defined in the hands of the public turned around and starts dropping. Okay, and that is in the, the I don't have it on here because I don't want to overwhelm people, but this the issue with the inflation that all happened in the same period. The price inflation started surging and then it turned around and started coming down all within in between these two goalposts, as it were. Okay, so when the Fed eased, started pumping money in, brought interest rates down to zero. Price inflation, as measured by CPI, started rising rapidly. Then the Fed started tightening, and price inflation starts coming down. (laughs) Okay, and so what a bunch of economists are saying is, yeah, though that's coincidental. What the Fed did had very little to do with the surge in the inflation, and then the so-called tightening measures doesn't really explain. It's kind of like two different things that coincidentally lined up a little bit, but it would be wrong theoretically and empirically for us to sit here and think that oh the fed tightening selling off assets sucking money out of the system jacking up interest rates from basically zero to 5.25 percent in i think record time uh that has nothing to do with what's going on here okay so that's what we're talking i just want to make sure empirically everyone understands these are the facts and then now what the different interpretations that the various schools of thought are putting on this stuff do you want to chime in on that at all or Sure. One thing that just struck me is uh, how 
crazy it is that M2 is decreasing. <laughs> right. I haven't seen that sort of thing in a long time. And so it's funny to me that for the first time in a long time that we've seen such a, a decrease in M2. I know there might be some like slight decreases earlier in the time series, like before 2003. But like this, this sort of decrease, at least in the past few decades, is just it's it's unprecedented. It's it's amazing to see. And for it's also amazing to hear economists say that it hasn't had as much of an impact as we would like. So like to actually discount that decrease in M2 when when we've had consistent increases in M2 for for decades to say that this all of a sudden reverse course going the other direction to say that that has no impact or very little impact is it seems crazy to me. Yeah, and just to amplify I started to praise you, and I don't know if I if I finished my train of thought, if I or maybe I pulled the chart up and then I forgot to uh, finish the sentence. But yeah, so folks, what the point Jonathan was making earlier was that Galbraith's narrative doesn't even make sense on its own terms because it's it's not that everybody just thought we were chugging along, and then all of a sudden the Fed shocked people in like March or April of 2022 by starting to jack up rates, and I was like, "Whoa, what are you doing that for?" That that's not what happened. There was this long campaign of prominent economists and other wonks and so forth saying, probably a lot of Republican politicians, hey, this the inflation's getting out of hand here. You, the Fed, you need to do something. They're like, well, we're monitoring the situation and we're going to blah, 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 blah. And then finally, and then yes, when we do it, begin to normalize policy rates, we'll, we'll do such and such and let the balance sheet roll off and blah, 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 and you know, doing in Fed speak. But they were communicating well before they actually pulled the trigger that we're getting ready to do this. It's just, a, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so it's it's kind of loading the deck or it's an unfair framing to make it sound as if the the change that happened affected things within three weeks. That no, it's more like the story would have to be the telegraphing of here's what we're getting ready to do over the course of several months. And then once you start doing it, it has the um expected effects. You know, that's that's more what we're talking about here. So yeah, why don't we switch then, Jonathan, to this idea of expectations. Uh, because that's a central thing here, mm. and I want to l- – let me do it this way. I think before we jump into that, let me just run over. This is kind of basic for some of you, but if you've never heard somebody explain it, it's, it's – hey, it's new to you. Uh, you. We need to get away from just thinking that money prices rise or fall proportionally with the stock of money. Okay, so um, – what I mean is price is quoted in that money. That It's not, there's a one-to-one. If Oh, if the quantity of money doubles, then prices have to double. And if the quantity of money gets cut in half, then prices get cut in half. And throughout history, rises or falls in some price index necessarily are exactly tied to the quantity of money. That, that That's wrong. Um, and just a, a quick thought experiment to show how expectations could matter is, suppose we're all, we all have a certain amount of dollars in the economy. And suppose normally you're not expecting the Fed to add anymore and the banks to not add anymore. And then the Fed says, hey, starting next month, we are going to dump $60 trillion you know, in $100 bills. We're just going to literally have helicopters going on dropping that on everybody starting next month. What are you going to do right now? Are you just going to keep going about your business and say, well, as soon as those $100 bills start falling a month from now, then things are going to change? No, obviously, among other things, you're going to change your investment portfolio. Like if you have a bunch of stuff sitting in bonds, you're going to get out of that. You're going to want to get into you know, real estate or gold or Bitcoin or whatever, but you're going to want to adjust yourself because you're expecting the dollar is going to crash next month. So I want to get ahead of that. And then if you think it through, folks, the act of you of everybody doing that will make the dollar crash right now. So you would see you know, prices and just even in general, or, hey, we've got $1,000 in our checking account. Let's not let it be sitting there when the $100 bills start raining down. Let's go buy canned goods or something. Like we don't, You don't want to be holding dollars. So anybody who has money, even in their wallets or whatever, they're going to be looking in their couch, could get rid of stuff. Let's go turn it into real goods. So everyone's going to want to get rid of dollars. But of course, that doesn't mean you're going to go in your backyard and start burning $20 bills. When I say get rid of them, it means you're going to try to spend them. So you got to find someone who's willing to take them. So in the new equilibrium, what has to happen is just prices quoted in dollars go way up. So that, yes, it's going to end up, someone's going to be holding all the 50s and 20s and 100s before this big helicopter drop happens. 
but to make them willing to sit on them, prices have risen so much that it's a very small portion of their portfolio. So it's not that they have, or rather to say, oh, I have $1,000 in my checking account. That means one thing right now, but in a world now where prices all went up by a factor of 10, now it's like, you know, only having $100 or no, well, yeah, <laughs> less than that. So that that's kind of the I- idea. Okay, yep. folks. So, so you can see there, I just changed the expectations, right? And so just knowing what may happen in the future can cause things to happen right now. So it's not that, oh, the only way prices can rise is if the Fed pumps in more money, even if it's just telling you that. Okay, so go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to add that uh, th- this, the expectations factor here was important for Mises and Rothbard as well. This is not just something that, you know, we just recently discovered in like in the past few years. But if you look back at Mises and Rothbard, this the unhinging of expectations, when, when people start to expect lots of inflation, that's what turns a regular old inflation into a hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people argue about what, what counts as a hyperinflation. Is it is it when there's, you know, six zeros after the like, are, do you have to have like a million percent inflation or something like that? And there's not really like you can't you can't really define it that way. Uh, according to Mises and Rothbard, what has to happen is you ha- you have to have everybody start to just dump like just totally devalue their the money that they have, and that that's what turns just a regular old inflation into a hyperinflation. It's it's actually not necessarily tied to a certain amount of money printing, although money printing does get that started and does sustain it. But the primary channel by which, like I said, a regular inflation turns into a hyperinflation is when those, it's when those expectations flip and people just, they start the flight into real values, as you mentioned, where they just go buy whatever they can as soon as they can. So that they're hold, so that they're not holding on to this hot potato, the, the rapidly, um, um, falling in value money that they're holding on to. So they're not holding on to that for, for very long at all. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, in fact, I think I might be butchering this, but I think Mises says something along the lines of that. Actually, when you go look at historical hyperinflations where the currency collapses and they have to just reintroduce, you know, some new variant or something um, that in the beginning, in the early stages, the amount the authorities are dumping in the system, prices are not rising proportionally. It takes the public, they, they keep thinking this is an aberration, but then once the public starts realizing, no, this is not what's going on, then they try to get ahead of it, and then prices start rising more rapidly. So even if the authorities are like doubling the money supply every week, prices are more than doubling every week in the middle period, and then you know it's an issue of what do the authorities do? If they tighten and they try to get serious, then they can get under control, but if they just keep trying to print more to get ahead of that, because right, the government's printing to meet its expenses, you're trying to hire troops or give food stamps or whatever you're doing, making reparations payments, who knows, um, that if prices are doubling every week, the government has to keep printing more and more money just to be able to pay its employees and whatever. And so then it just turns like into a, an arms race or a race to the bottom. And then if they just keep doing that, then yeah, eventually the the prices just rise so rapidly. So if the currency collapses, and in a sense, it, its purchasing power goes to zero, in terms of proportionality, that would mean the government created an infinite amount of new money, which it obviously doesn't do. It's always a finite amount, right? So just in any extreme case like that, you can see that, no, on the limit, when the currencies ultimately collapse, then it's not that, oh, if the government, if prices went up by such and such, then that means the you know, stock of money must have gone up by the exact same percentage, that, that there's no reason for that, that that pattern doesn't hold. Should we address, Jonathan, do you, I have my views on this, but something people are bringing up to bolster their claim that we it can't possibly be the fed to who's to be congratulated for getting price inflation under control that they're tightening it just there's no way that that's what's doing it cuz there's not enough time for that have to kicked in and they will cite the authority that hey every what right winger genuflects to Milton Friedman and his famous thing is to say that monetary policy works, but with long and variable lags. Do you have anything that you want to say on that? Um, well, I, I remember um, 
when when I took uh, principles of of macroeconomics from Roger Garrison at Auburn University, he he had you know he has these famous powerpoints, and he when he was presenting the equation of exchange, which Milton Friedman used uh, to basically explain everything, uh, he he always used a, I think it was the lag of thirty to forty eight months, and, and it was like for some reason that's what Friedman had settled on is like that's how long it takes for changes in the money supply to be fully realized in in, in uh, prices that there's this there's just this uh this lag time between basically policy changes and real mm-hmm. effects and you you can hear some of that same sort of language um in uh like when the fed chair uh is making announcements uh or with the congressional hearings lately he's been saying that um we haven't fully realized the the full effects of, of of the hike in interest rates. And I think he's right. I do think that there, there is a delay, but I don't think that there's like some sort of mechanical time frame by which it works. Because I mean, as we're, as we were just discussing, it really just depends. It depends on what people's expectations are. It depends on the demand for money. It depends on all sorts of other factors. There, there's no way that you can, that you can say that it's always going to be this exact time frame by which, this change in the money supply results in this precise change in, in prices. Okay. Um, and the ex- equation of exchange there is the MV equals PQ is one formulation. That's what you're talking about. Mm, yeah. Okay. So, so folks, that's like, I'm sure many of you have heard of this or seen it. It's the left-hand side is M times V. And then the right-hand side of the equation is P times Q is often how they present it. And so M is the money stock. V is the velocity or the, you know, the turnover of the money stock. How many, times on average is a dollar bill change hands, that kind of idea. So M times V is like how many dollars are spent in a given time period. And then P times Q is the average price level and Q is the level of real output. And so the idea is that, you know, cause that's also, if you think about it, how much total stuff is produced and sold, what's the average price per unit. So that's also must be equal to the total dollar spent. So the two have to be equal. And then if you write that out, then it's like, oh, so if the money supply doubles, and velocity is constant, then that means P times Q must double. So does that mean real output doubles? No, maybe prices go up. So mm-hmm. you can tell any story you want, whether you're a Keynesian or a, a monetarist or whatever in that, with that framework. And that's what they're arguing about. Um, so my take on that, Jonathan, is I have always thought, even back when I was a fan of Milton Friedman, so we have to go back you know, now, uh, I always thought that was a weird framing, right? Like if Isaac Newton said, the force of gravity works, but with long and variable lags, what that would mean is I don't yet have a theory of gravity, <laughs> right? Like, like that doesn't really explain too much. Um, and so clearly, you know, if, if what we're saying is, oh, yeah, if they greatly increase the stock of money over time, we would expect prices to rise. And if it doesn't happen right away, you know, it might happen soon. Just hold your, hold your breath. That, okay, fair enough, but that's really not a great theory of the d- determination of money prices. And in fact, that's not what we as Austrians would use mm-hmm. if, if we, you know, on a chapter of how our price is determined, it doesn't, you know, Rothbard doesn't say, well, what I'm going to give you here is how our price is on average determined over the next 40 months. And it has to do with, a st- no, it's, it's not like that at all. We can get very precise quantitative explanations. If we have a thought experiment and we can control all the variables and, and, and just stipulate what they are. And, and so, yeah, so, uh, beyond that, I know, um, I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. I used to work for Arthur Laffer and he didn't like that phrase. He just thought that was wrong. And I mean, he respected Milton Friedman and liked a lot of his empirical work and stuff, but he just thought that that particular way of handling it was wrong. Cause he thought, no, when you make a policy change, boom, it's the community immediately. He, he said something like, suppose your local, uh, the city government changes it so that it was something like um, it, it tra- at the traffic lights, instead of it being red, maybe they made it blue and, and said from now on, a blue light means stop. He said, how long would it take for the community to react to that change? Would it take 40 months? And I was like, no, that would take about a week. Like there'd be a bunch of accidents probably at first, but pretty soon everybody would learn that new rule pretty quick. And that's, that's what his point was. And I know Scott Sumner of the market monitorist school also, he says, like if the Fed makes a policy announcement, like, oh, we're going to do QE3, that Sumner says, we don't have to wait and see, did it work? He says, look at asset prices, and specifically his favorite metric is um, expectations of future NGDP growth. 
right? So he was saying there's proxies because you don't actually have like a market contract for that. But he, he that's the thing he uses. And he says, no, on the day of the announcement, I look at that. And if, if that thing didn't pop, you know, if you don't see some stock prices go up, or then the, the announcement, the policy is a failure. I don't have to wait and see, right? So that's anyway, I'm just saying Galbraith's notion that this is this idea of the expectations channel. Nobody thinks Fed policy matters. It's it's kind of nutty. I I think that this is pretty standard in mainstream economics now. That the expectations channel is huge, and that's why, as you say, Jonathan, like the the whole thing about forward guidance that's now become very commonplace. That's why they did with QE three. What we call QE three, the Fed didn't call it that. Um, and earlier ones like they were trying to ex. ex- they were saying like with oh with QE with QE one and and QE two, the market knew ahead of time how much total we were going to pump in, and they just completely adjusted prices. That's why with QE three, we said no, this is an open ended commitment. We're going to keep buying these treasuries and mortgage backed securities until things improve. And so again, even there, it was a it, w- it wasn't just a flow of what's the Fed doing today. It was like knowing that embedded in their longer or long range policy framework. That's what investors needed to know. And that's why some people called it the QE infinity as opposed to right. QE3 because it would go on forever. Uh, what, one thing that I would mention um, is on this uh, topic of expectations, uh, some people in, in this discussion that, that you started on uh, Twitter, some people were saying that it, was, it, was, it could have been achieved by just the first little bit of rate hikes, like one or two rate hikes, along with this announcement effect, would have achieved the disinflation that that we've seen, and the rest was just, I, I guess, icing. The rest was was just unnecessary, or actually, some people were saying, threatens to to cause a recession. Of course, we we have all sorts of uh, disagreements with that, but but the idea is that it, if so, they might say if the announcement effect is so strong, if the Fed can use this forward guidance, then why even do any real monetary policy? Why actually change interest rates ever in any direction if you can just sort of confidently signal and of course that that question answers itself you would run into a a the boy who cries wolf sort of of problem where if, if the fed never followed up with what they're announcing they're going to do then they would lose the ability to actually use that announcement effect to to get the results of their the the intended results of their monetary policy as soon as they can so if if they if they had no credibility at all if if nobody could trust anything that the Fed signaled about what they're going to do in the future, then then these people might be right. Then then you could you could very easily say, well, yeah, we've had this disinflation, but it it takes time for these sorts of things to work out, and we definitely didn't have any expectations because we don't trust the Fed. But of course, we don't live in that world. We live in a world where people do actually put stock in what the Fed is saying and what they're announcing about what their policy path is going to be, uh, which to me shows that, well, then, yeah, we can expect to, to see more immediate responses to, to their actual policies and their policy announcements. Let me make sure I'm getting your, right, you're saying that you saw some people, cause I folks, I, I, uh, do like test runs and I post some things on Twitter and then see the reaction to make sure that when Jonathan and I go into this, we we're fully informed because where else would you get your information besides Twitter? And you're saying, Jonathan, that one of the arguments people were making was to say, okay, you guys who think that the fed had something to do with this. Well, according to your logic, then just this tiniest little, like the feds magical, almost they can just hike rates a little bit. And it's all just their, their jaw boning. And for the months leading up to the few little rate hikes and all of a sudden inflation turns around. So then why don't they just do that all the time instead of you know, like, why the need to raise rates to 5.25% if according to your guys' logic, it was just the first few hikes that got the situation under control. Is, is that? Yeah. I, we might be putting some words in their mouth, but with, with all of that, they didn't say we never have to do any monetary policy, okay. but that, that's sort of the, like, if you take it to like an extreme, okay. then but what they're saying is that, hey, you guys are, you're, put, you're putting all the stock in the announcement effect. If that's the case, then, then all we need to do is just tiny little bits of monetary policy, tiny little increases or right. decreases okay. in the interest rate. And, and so like, one example is this, uh, 
is this guy, uh, Kevin Erdman, um, who, who said inflation had fallen to 2% month over month by the time the Fed funds rate was over 1% and credit stopped rising when the rate was 2.3%. If rate hikes were responsible, it was accomplished with very little hiking. And so, and so his, he, he's in this crowd saying that it only took a tiny little bit of, of the hikes for, for them to achieve the, the disinflation. The, the, the rest is, is all awash. The rest, the rest could be um, attributed to all so, other sorts of factors. Okay, and, and actually probably more specifically, he's, because he doesn't think that even that turnaround was due to the little Fed rate hikes. He was just saying, even on your guy's own case, the most you could possibly say is that these initial rate hikes, because the, situa- the ship had already turned with inflation before mm-hmm. the, the bulk of these heights kicked in. So you guys can't even run around saying, oh, yes, they raised rates from 0 to 5.25%. That No, 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 we're trying to explain how come the inflation picture turned around so dramatically early on because it, by the, the, the Fed hikes had just gotten going when the situation really stabilized. Something like that? Yeah, yeah, I think okay. you're right. Okay. Now, did you have more to say on that guy? Did... Um, I did, I did notice that, um, he was, uh, he was very willing. Let me see if I can find, he was very willing to uh, talk about expectations in an earlier post. Uh, so he had said, and this was in, uh, just a few days ago, he said inflation expectations had been below target for a decade. Um, and he says, this should be, this should be, ideally it would be between 2.2 and 2.5 and 2021, the fed finally fixed that. So he was saying, he was saying the fed should be credited for getting inflation expectations up mm-hmm. uh, because it had been so low for so long, according to him. Uh, so it's unanticipated, yes, but this improved long-term inflation and employment. If this is unwelcome, then we have different priorities. So he's in the camp that would say higher inflation expectations is a good thing. He says it was a huge win for the Fed to break out of a decade-old pattern of below-target inflation expectations. It would be a crying shame to hold off on rate cuts too long and waste that win. So he w- he was ready to credit the Fed for getting inflation expectations up, but he seems reluctant to give to give them credit for the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Um, what's also interesting. So I did a similar thing as you, like I knew about this forward guidance and I was trying to find people who were perhaps contradicting themselves now. And uh, so I just Googled forward guidance Krugman and I came up with this paper from 2017 called the forward guidance paradox. So this paper is not authored by Krugman. It's by Richard Harrison, Matthew Waldron and Alex Haberis. I might be butchering that guy's last name. And so the, 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 but the opening of this is interesting. It's relevant to what we're doing here, Jonathan. In New Keynesian models, a promise to hold interest rates lower in the future has powerful effects on economic activity and inflation today. This result relies on a strong link between expected future policy rates and current activity, and also a belief that the policymaker will make good on the promise. Okay, and then the, the, in the concluding section, uh, it says, Using forward guidance promises to stimulate the economy is an idea, idea dating back to Krugman in 1998. The likelihood that a forward guidance promise of this type would lack full credibility in the absence of an appropriate commitment mechanism is one reason why central banks have not attempted to use forward guidance in this way. Okay, so this uh, the reason I'm going through this is it dovetails nicely with what you just said. So, again, folks, the idea, in fairness, I don't know off the top of my head if Krugman has been coming out and saying full stop, no, 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 there's no way Fed policy possibly could have turned inflation around this quickly. I think he he does believe that, but I I can't say that he's definitely contradicting himself here. Whereas his buddies certainly are. But in any event, what they're referring to here in this paper is back in '98 when uh, Japan was in a slump and they had tried inflating, they had interest rates really low, and just geez, it wasn't working. It seemed like standard Keynesianism was broken. And Krugman said, "Oh, what they need to do is promise to be irresponsible in the future." And so that even when things go back to normal, and normally you would expect them to start raising interest rates, that they need to promise credibly right now in the late 90s that, no, no, we won't do that. We will keep nominal rates low, even when price inflation picks back up again here in Japan, uh, so that real rates are negative. And then you know people knowing that will now start investing in whatever now because, oh, so policy is, is looser than we thought in terms of the long run. All right, so that's what he was saying. And then in this paper, they're talking about what you were getting at, Jonathan, that 
if you fix the economy by making promises about what you're going to do in the future, and then the economy starts taking off and then it's chugging along, well, why three years from now would you do something that at that point is actually not the optimal thing to do as a central banker just because you promised three years ago when you were in the midst of a slump in, in the liquidity trap that, oh, don't worry, three years from now when we're not in the liquidity trap, we're going to do X, Y, Z. And then so the issue was, well, would people trust the central bankers to make good on doing something three years from now that's not in their interest at that point? But if they could just somehow promise they would do it now, they would get out of the liquidity trap, right? So that's the idea. But with all this stuff, folks, the big picture is the idea that, oh, the central bank just saying things about what they're going to do in the future might have effects right now. That's not some crazy right-wing theory that the Heritage Foundation cooked up right now because they can't explain what happened. This is standard in economics. And so when Galbraith and others are running around saying the idea that what the Fed did could have any impact and that they should have any responsibility to, you know, for what we saw with the price indices, I think it's kind of, at the very least, it's, it's misleading the public that, no, there's a rich tradition of thinking that expectations about what we're going to do in the future might have an impact today. Yeah, so why don't we uh, look at that? Why don't we look at some of the, uh, the, the reasons that they do list for, so like why, if, if they are hesitant to credit the Fed for bringing about the disinflation, what are some of the things that they do say cause this disinflation? Like some of them are saying that, Households became cash rich during the pandemic, and so they had all this extra cash. And so we we would have had a disinflation anyway as people spend that extra cash, and it just sort of it just sort of winds winds down on its own. Uh, but what are some of the other things that people have mentioned that you've seen? Uh, I'm trying to think because you're right. I was trying to find. I mean, it's it's a lot of it's kind of generic stuff. Just like you say, oh well, supply bottlenecks cleared up. And so that, you know, that's, that was what it was. And again, like with that too, it's, I don't know if the timing works out right. You know, so it's, let me just mention before I forget folks. So one part of the trickiness here, and I think that's what that Erden guy was getting at is the press typically when they report the inflation figures and it's not the, the press is doing something wrong. Like this is the way the BLS releases the CPI. A lot of times the headline is it's like a 12 month change, right? So like it's, oh, CPI came out this way. It was 3.7%. What they usually mean by that is this month's level compared, or well, there's a lag, you know, the last month's level compared to the 12 months earlier level, that percentage change. So really what happened in our case is uh, in what, like mid 2021 going forward, like there were several months where prices were rising rapidly and then they kind of leveled off. And so there was, it's the, the month, each month's year over year figure was coming down, but it was still way above normal. Even though if you just look from month to month at that point, the hikes weren't that big. Okay. So that's, that's one way of, of, of trying to get across what actually happened. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's the supply bottleneck thing. That's certainly could be a factor, but you're right, Jonathan. I'm, I was, I actually couldn't get, pin them down too much. They were just mostly putting their cards on uh, or putting their chips on, I should say the idea that it's, it can't be that this fed mechanism that that just doesn't make sense. Cause yeah, I, I was going to do what you're trying to do too, to say, okay, well then what do you think it was? And then to go see, well, is that plausible that that thing could have had such a rapid, you know, ch- changeover effect. And of course our position isn't just like well, I, my position, I'm, I'm assuming it's serious. It's not that, the the Fed is a hundred percent responsible for this, or that or that they can claim that they that they've done this on their own. Of course, the the economy is complex, and there's all sorts of things moving around, including people's expectations, including leftover uh, sort of ongoing effects from what happened uh, during the pandemic and lockdowns, and, and all of the, uh, the the stimulus checks and everything. Of course, all of all of this is, uh, like I said, it's a wash. And so th- that's why it's it's interesting to me when I see economists they they want to pin all of the blame on one factor or they want to uh, not give any credit to one particular factor when it seems to me that the most plausible explanation is that there's all sorts of things moving around all sorts of things contributing to the the actual realized market outcomes that we see it it seems strange to, to say that this to, to either completely deny or to completely credit one particular thing to, to causing what we see on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And I think 
some of the, what's going on here is you're, you're right. There's these more longstanding, deep seated urges to not allow the public to start believing in certain causal relationships. And specifically, because like at, when QE was happening, right? So there was the financial crisis in 2008. The Fed starts doing the rounds of QE. And right-wing hard money types, including me, were going around saying, whoa, 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 this is a very bad idea. You're going to blow up another bubble. The dollar's going to get crushed. And Keynesian types, progressives, were, oh, listen to these, these roofs. They don't know how modern monetary theory works. And, and even if you're not MMT person, like the, I'm just using that in a colloquial sense. And uh, there's no connection between, look at, the, look at what happened with the Fed's balance sheet. You don't see CPI going through the roof, right? So I think... People like that are very concerned right now to make sure, like, hey, 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 just because the Fed turned on the monetary spigots after COVID hit and prices started rising and then the Fed started tightening and then prices, you know, they didn't fall, they the, the hikes slowed. Don't think that, like, oh, so the way we avoid inflation is by chaining the, the Fed's hands. No, don't think that, guys, because, no, we want to keep the, the Fed very flexible and nimble to be able to inflate when we think it's a good idea. So I think there's there's some of that involved here. Um, which is why people who, in some contexts, like if it's the Fed promising, oh, we're going to inflate in the future. Oh, yeah, that's a great policy move. Go ahead. Yeah, there's ex expectations channel and blah, blah, blah. But now if the Fed was promising, we're going to get tight pretty soon, get ready, that no, that, that couldn't have had an effect. You know, So it's it's a weird uh, asymmetry there. Are you, are you suggesting that we're the only consistent ones around here? Uh, well, you're down in Auburn, right? So there's probably other people around here from your perspective that are also <laughs> consistent. But yeah, where I am, yes, that's as far as I know within the zip code. <laughs> I am the only consistent economist. There's actually a Robert. I feel bad for the guy. He's at, I don't know if it's Boston College or something, but it, there is a, a guy at an academic institution that's in Massachusetts, you know, near Boston, that he's a, his name is Robert Murphy and he's a macroeconomist and he's a Keynesian. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you poor guy. He must go to all these conferences and people come up like, you're the guy who hates Kruger. Oh, wait, no, you, you have hair. Who you, what is this? So I guess maybe, I don't know if you, if there's other things. I, I do want to avoid confusing people or misleading them. So both camps in this debate have sort of agreed that, yes, we did. It did happen that price inflation got under control. The, uh, without hurting the economy, and now they're just arguing about that because they're both sort of their predictions were both wrong. That the Austerian camp was saying we're going to need massive, you know, rate hikes and tightening, selling off Fed's balance sheet and such. And unfortunately, unemployment's going to go way up, maybe to six point five percent for two years. Apparently, Furman said that, um, and that that's regrettable, but that's what we got to do, folks, because we cannot let this get out. Of, you know, we can't let the genie get out of the bottle. And the left was saying. No, 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 don't raise rates. If you do that, you will tip us into a recession. Keep rates how they are, just raise them a little bit, and a lot of this inflation is going to go away on its own. Um, and that's what, so that's what both their camps are saying. And so what happened in practice, according to them, is we did get inflation under control with no recession, so therefore we both are scratching our heads. And my view is, and Jonathan, you seem like you at least agreed qualitatively with it, that we talked about last time about the soft landing is I don't understand why everyone's just taking it as a given that with this Fed tightening, there's not going to be a recession. That even if you look back at um, going into the 2008 crisis, things as of July 2006 look just like they do right now, or in, you know July of of uh, our our time frame that they they wrote, raised rates back then to 5.25 percent, then started holding there. Unemployment kept falling for a significant period after that, so they would have had every reason to believe they had achieved a soft landing you know, amidst the housing bubble. And then, as Jonathan pointed out, he went and did a Google search, all sorts of news stories in 2007 saying soft landing, and from reputable, you know, not just some some money, you know, some bond fund manager, but from like the Dallas Fed as late as September of 2007 saying soft landing. Reputable Dallas Fed, yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, this is on a, on a grading on a curve. Right. So it, it's where it, it's tricky. It, it might sound like we're taking the side of the Austerian camp on this episode right now, folks, but no, it's it's tricky. There's so many moving parts and people have so many different components to their worldviews. It's like everybody's wrong or partially right. 
And so we just want to be clear not we are not agreeing that, ah, yes, the Fed did achieve a soft landing with this and it's through the expectations channel. Good job, Powell. That's not what we're saying. Yeah, it, it, it does sort of sound like we, like in the previous episode, we were trying to uh, cast blame and then and on the Fed. And th- in this episode, we're trying to defend the Fed. It's like, no, the, the Fed actually did uh, help achieve this the disinflation that we've seen. But but it's it's not exactly that. It, it Basically, what we're saying in both episodes is that monetary policy has consequences that you, you can't. You can't, uh, on on the one hand, say that uh, the Fed can work to improve macroeconomic conditions, can stop depressions from happening, can stimulate economic growth, but then, then in other certain circumstances, say that the Fed is actually powerless, or like what the Fed has done has actually done nothing and can't be credited at all for for causing these sorts of macroeconomic outcomes. So, if anything, we're we're just consistently saying monetary policy matters. It, interest rates and, and fiddling with interest rates, it, it does have consequences in, in both directions. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, that's standard Austrian business cycle theory. It's not that Jonathan and I are like, oh, well, let's look at the data and let's come up with our story ex post. That's not what's going on. That normally, you know, what's the standard Austrian theory of the business cycle? That the Fed slash banking system pumps in credit that's not backed up by genuine savings that pushes down interest rates. The boom ensues, then things start overheating. The Fed slash regular banks get nervous and they tighten, and then that causes the economy to go into recession. So, right, I am saying, you we I, with the chart we showed earlier, folks, that the Fed opened up the monetary spigots, price inflation starts going up, they slam on the brakes, price inflation comes in under control, right? And I still think a bad recession's coming, part because of what they did there, and also because of the prior inflation, you know, during the rounds of QE that I don't think that. Two two month technical recession under the lockdown, fully cleansed from the system. So so right, th- this is standard Austrian stuff. It's that that's partly why I am. I guess that's my bias or my you know my dog in the fight. I don't want people to think that the Fed had nothing to do with just happening. I was like, no, the Fed is very potent. It's the engine that creates dollars and pumps. Are you kidding me? You're saying that that doesn't have much to do with what goes on with the economy? Yep, I'm with you all the way. All right, well, good. <laughs> all right, well, that's a good spot <laughs> to wind up, folks. Uh, Thank you, Jonathan, for your time and your insights, as always. Thanks for having me, Bob. And thank you, folks, for tuning in, as always, and we will see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org. Mises.org.